You are on Max's Island, a podcast by Meet Max Power. On Max's Island podcast, you'll hear the lived experiences of people who choose to live life a little differently. It might be a story of when they took time out and dared to do something crazy. Perhaps they made a decision to leave it all behind and follow their dreams. Or maybe they just stopped listening to what other people thought and did what was right for them. This experience becomes a story that is part of them and one that you need to hear. So, now that you're on Max's Island, listen to the wisdom in these stories and you too will be inspired to do what you have always wanted to do. Today on Max's Island, I've got Julianne Chapman. Welcome to the island. Thank you. It's cool to be here. Now, I pause there because nobody calls you Julianne, or very few people do. So we call you Jack. So if you don't mind, I'll call you Jack throughout uh, today's little talk. Anything but Julie is fine and Jack is perfect. Thanks. Right. Well, Jack, on Max's Island, we love to hear those stories of that time in your life when you made that big decision to do something out of the ordinary or you had been planning to do something and you finally plucked up the courage to do it Mm. or life just threw you that curveball and um, you needed to do something a little bit different. When in your life has that happened to you? That's a good thing. So I would, my, my story probably is about when I moved from Zimbabwe to Australia I arrived in Australia in 2007, in October 2007, with one suitcase and a laptop. And I arrived in Perth. But I first came to Australia probably the year before for a bit of a look-see because I'd never been there before, even though I have an Australian passport and I'm an Australian citizen now, very proudly Australian citizen, but I'd never been here. How long had you been in Zimbabwe? Uh, So I was born in Zim and born and brought up in Zim. Um, I have lived on a number of other continents. So I've lived in in Canada for a year and I've lived in the UK for about seven or eight years, but I've not travelled to Australia before. So um, before the big brave step in 2007, I thought I may as well come and see the country for a bit of a look-see. And I I remember this incredible sense um, when I was flying into Sydney on my own and quite excited and nervous. And as the plane banked around before it came into land, I got sight of land and I had this quite tearful moment of a real sense of coming home, having never been here before and just had this like a bit weepy, probably jet lagged, but a bit weepy, a bit weepy and got a real sense of, wow, I've never been to this continent before and yet I feel like I'm coming home. So I wonder what awaits. Jack, if you don't mind me asking, how old were you at that time? Um, So when I arrived for in 2007, I was about 40, um, 41, um, but then before, so just under, you know, in my late 30s, and, yeah, that was my age then. So so you often hear of people in their 20s 
moving overseas and and looking for their adventure. So it, it's a little unusual that somebody around around that age for the first time going to a new country and and preparing to settle there. Yeah, starting again in my so when I arrived in two thousand and seven, I was forty forty one. Now I have to remember my age. Um, but and it was uh, it felt like a really big step to do at that point because you know I lived I've gone to the UK in the standard thing I've gone to the UK in my twenties did my nursing and that feels like a normal age to kind of move continents and and go um but starting and it was a really intentional choice to start again. As I, I left, when I think about leaving Zimbabwe, what I was leaving and what I was moving towards, I was I was kind of walking away from a future that I didn't want to have in that country and wanting to start again in a future that I didn't know it would exist but really wanted to create, I think. And did you have family in Zimbabwe that you were leaving behind? Yep. My mum, my dad, my two, my whole family was all in Zimba. So I literally was the, the, the lone explorer waving goodbye, saying goodbye. And actually, so a full family and, you know, love them very much. And they were, we're a very close family. And I think my sister, which was just before I left, probably six months, six to eight months before I left, decided that she was going to give me these two little kittens Um, which was a horrible thing to do, but I fell in love with the kittens. And I think, honestly, it was probably harder leaving behind my cats than it was leaving my family (laughs) because, you know, cats are are people too. And leaving the family, leaving the cats, leaving all my friends and everything I knew. Um, I didn't have a job to come to, but I had friends who were going to put me up and I I was prepared to do any work. Um, And I suppose arriving in the mining boom, there was lots of options, but I didn't have a job and came with a small amount of savings because I don't have any trust funds or anything and decided just to start again and throw myself at the luck of the world and see what happens. You were leaving, by the sounds, a career as well. So you not only were leaving your family in a country, but you were leaving your career. That must have been interesting to do that. Well, my career at the time, so I probably had a few career changes in my life. Like I mentioned, I'd started as a nurse and I specialised in intensive care, and then that was in the UK, and then I left that to become a missionary in Africa, which is a kind of weird and wonderful thing to do, and I did that for a couple of years. And then I started a business in outside catering with my best friend and partner at the time, business partner, and we started a company, and we were running a really successful outside catering company. And we did that all through the years in Zim, where you couldn't really buy food in the shops, the economy was in free fall and it was a really challenging time to you know to do that and and I loved it but I also was quite exhausted so one of the things I absolutely knew I wasn't going to do in in Perth was I was not going to be cooking for a living I would do anything but cook it was basically the thing because I yes leaving behind a career and but I really was quite happy to start again on, on that front but but and I also knew I didn't want to nurse and I didn't want to cook. Those were the twos. Because for me, those resembled going backwards. I didn't want to go backwards. I wanted to go forwards. So I was prepared to do anything. Just before we leave your family in Zimbabwe, what did they feel? How did they react to you going? And you mm-hmm. talked about your sister giving you a couple of kittens a few months before. Do you think that was part of the strategy to, to keep you? 
I definitely think it was part of the strategy to keep me and it almost worked because, you know, um, I think it, the interesting thing is so my both my sisters were married at the time and I was single at the time and there was a really intentional choice about realising that as the single member of the family, they could choose to move anywhere in the in the world and, you know, their loyalty was to their, their nuclear family, I suppose. So I, I needed to make a choice for me um, because it wasn't a guarantee that my family were going to stay in Zimbabwe either. And I, I didn't think Zimbabwe had a long-term future for me. And the realisation of... I have to make that choice for me and if I, I need to do this on my own and I'm single so I need to make a choice. And also as a gay woman in, in an African country where it, that's not welcome, I wanted to make a what I thought would be a good long-term choice for me to be in a sort of inclusive and supportive society. It sounds like being single was very helpful. That gave you that little bit of freedom to challenge yourself and, and probably would have made it easier if you wanted at any point in time to change your decision again and go back. Yeah, I think when I came, one of the things that I allowed myself to do was um, I I didn't sort of say I'm leaving forever. I, I said to myself and others, I'm going to give it a go in Australia and I'll give myself a year and see how I feel. So I didn't sort of say I'm absolutely leaving, you know, goodbye, so long, farewell. I gave myself some permission just to say I'm going to give it a go and try and that felt okay for me. I also, I to be honest, I didn't like who I was in Zim. I was quite fearful and I was quite sort of obsessive about certain things and I just, I wanted a different life and I wanted to be different. Um, and, and for a while when I arrived, I was like, oh, look, my emotional baggage hasn't come with me. I've only got my suitcase. This is great. And I felt like a different person. And then, Probably about eight months into my stay, then I, all my emotional baggage, as you know, you can't leave it behind. It arrived quite firmly and I was like, oh, I've just got to do the work I've got to do on that as well. And that doesn't change, I suppose. So you can't leave who you are, but learning how to be a different person. And, and yeah, it was when I look back on it now, it's probably one of the bravest things I've ever done. Um, and I don't recognise that bravery in myself now, but it was, I felt like it was a necessity, like I had to do it. Um, I had to do it to start again because I just didn't want to be on the track that I was on there. Even though I have good friends, my family was all there, and lots of people choose to live in Zim and love their life, but I knew that wasn't going to be for me. You made the comment that you gave yourself permission to to move and and make that decision. Sounds like you'd made you'd given yourself permission on a few occasions throughout your life to to make some decisions, but also by the sounds, this was the biggest you'd, you'd made in your life. It's interesting, isn't it? Because when I tell the story, I'm like, oh, so I, I was a nurse, then I gave myself permission, I decided to become a missionary, and then I moved, you know, back to Africa to do the missionary thing, and then I moved out of that and did catering. Then I moved to Australia, so it feels like there's a bit of a sort of pattern of I give myself options to do different things and take steps to do that. So, uh, yeah, I feel like that's an okay thing. But I've, And now I'm, I'm thrilled I came to Australia, delighted to be in Perth. I wish I'd come sooner. I wish I'd started sooner so that my roots could be deep. But I also don't regret anything I've done because I feel like I am who I am. I've learned what I've learned. And life has been tough but good. And, you know, I feel like I think we are made who we are by all of the choices we've made along the way. And things like, you know, 
I didn't have a trust fund. I didn't have huge amounts of stuff. I didn't need to move everything over. So arriving with a suitcase and a laptop was an okay thing to do. On retrospect, I might have changed what I put in the suitcase, but it's weird, the stuff that we value. But but again, things, things aren't of value. You know, people and relationships, that sort of stuff matters and remaining connected and, and you know, the fact that we've got ways to be connected to people globally because anyone from Africa will know that that all your friends and family are scattered around the world. So, you know, I've got friends like you have probably all over the world and we can remain connected in so many different ways. That was just not possible when I went nursing. There was no smartphones. My mum used to write us air letters and I'd save up my, my 50p coins to make phone calls home. And yet when I came to Australia, you know, you're able to have Skype calls, you're able to have lots of different ways to connect and it wasn't expensive. So that was a an amazing advantage, an amazing advantage here. You mentioned the context of your life and the context of what you'd done before and how that you would never, you know, you, you accept that and wouldn't do anything differently. Let's fast forward then to... Sydney, you're in that plane, coming into land. What happens then? So that was for my look-see and this real weird sense of coming home, a little bit emotional. Um, I spent time in Sydney with my cousin. I loved Sydney but felt that it was too big for me um, to to come to. So it was a really clear decision with Sydney of love it but no, I'm not going to resettle there. It feels like a very adult intellectual sort of thing. So Sydney was a clear no. I went to Brisbane to see friends and stay with them and they were also kind and generous and I felt Brisbane was honestly too humid for me. <laughs> My hair would not survive in Brisbane <laughs> and I just could not be doing Brisbane at all. And then when I came to Perth, it, I feel like Goldilocks really, you know, um, with the different size beds. I'm like Perth was big enough to be big, small enough to be small, comfortable enough and friendly enough and there was a few people that I knew and it felt right. And the thing that made it for me, a friend took me to Cottesloe Beach and there was those pine trees that looked neat and nice grass where you could sit close enough to the beach on grass and it was neat and tidy. And I just thought, oh, my goodness, this is heaven. And my mum, who is Australian, um, had told me lots of stories about Australia when I was little, but I never paid attention. So when I arrived in Perth, there are, there are suburbs and roads and things that are named after her or her family that have familiar names. So my mum's, one of her middle names is Winthrop. So there's like Winthrop Avenue and um, my great-grandfather started UWA. So there's Hackett Hall and there's, you know, names of family members that sound familiar were suddenly there. And I went to go and visit the university and was standing in that incredible hall where my mum was christened. And there was this sense of, family history that I didn't know existed, even though mum had been chuntering on, telling stories that I thought honestly were boring at the time. And I wish I paid more attention to when I got here. I was like, oh, that's what you're talking about, mum. So there's this drive when you're coming coming down Sterling Highway towards the university, you come over a rise and you can see the the sort of tower thing. Yep. Um, and, and I was like, and every time I do that, I'm like, ah, oh, there's there's mum's uni, there's that's mum. You know, it's like this point on the map where I that for me is mum's place. And she's not with us now, so she's died a few years ago. And um, but I, I always feel close to her there because 
it's it's her ground, you know. So it's amazing, and I feel so privileged to um, have so much family history uh, uh, around here. And yeah, it's just that was that was an incredible thing for me. And I got taken on a tour of the uni. I felt like visiting royalty as a direct descendant, and I got shown around the place and and treated really well, and saw these pictures of various family members, and just got a real sense of feeling so honoured. And so privileged to be a part of that where I hadn't valued that before. And, I, you know, um, Bustleton is named after, you know, family members. And my great-great-great-granny was the, um, the woman who rode her horse into the sea along with Sam Isaacs to save the sailors drowning. Or the, you know, so there's lots of family history, um, some of which when, you, when I reread now, I would probably look at with different eyes and would see very differently, but I still feel immensely privileged to have roots here. And that that is not something I take for granted. Fascinating. I'm, I've got lots of questions. Before we come back to your story of, of what happened in Perth for you when you came and settled here, two questions. One, why did your mother leave Perth mm. with such strong heritage? And secondly, she went to UWA? Oh, yeah, no, mum didn't go to UWA, oh. so no, she didn't. But my nephew and my niece um, um, are both at UWA currently um, and really fortunate to be there. So, no, my mum left because her parents left Australia. I think the, the strong maternal line um, in our family, very strong, but my grandfather, I think, wanted to move away from the, the sort of the family from his side, so he moved to the country of Rhodesia as it was then, and he took my grand with and my mum and, and family then with, probably to escape the family. So, no, my mum didn't attend UWA, but she was christened in the hall. And there's all sorts of history sort of written about that. but And I heard about it from when I was young. She forever told lots of stories. But as it is when you're a child, your parents' stories bore you. Um, and then when you get older, you think, goodness me, I wish I'd pressed record. I wish I'd recorded mum telling those stories because they, they would have been helpful to remember now, I think. It's so nice for you to have had that experience, though, when you did come back and this that familiarity and that sense of, this is you and very much part of you. And it perhaps goes to show you actually were listening, maybe not yeah. quite taking it all in, or but there was a sense of this is part of you. Yeah. I always feel a bit like, an, you know, the imposter syndrome thing. I feel like this might be part of me, but but I don't, you know, it's a, it's a huge thing to be a part of and I'm just there by birth. I haven't done anything to deserve that. I'm just, you know, I got lucky to be born into that place. So, and I'm thrilled that that um, my niece and nephew are at UWA and, and they feel really honoured to be there and, and it's an amazing thing to be a part of that history and contributing to that. So, you know, I just think it's immense privilege. It makes so much sense that, when you did arrive here, though, that you felt like it was home or that you were very comfortable. So when you're on Cottesloe Beach, had you, did you have any idea of what you were going to do? None, none at all. So when I arrived, I had literally no clue and the friends I stayed with were so kind. I thought I stayed with them a few months, but they reminded me the other day that it was actually a year I stayed with them. So the first... <laughs> And, and so there was a couple of intentional things. I arrived in the month of October because I wanted to be here for Pride. 
because I've never attended a pride parade in my life. And given that, you know, how Zimbabwe feels about gay people, that was a very foreign thing for me. And also as a sort of semi-closeted gay Christian person, that was tricky. So arriving for the Pride Month was a very intentional thing. And I remember my first Pride Pride Parade standing on the side of the road with a group of friends that I'd met and um, seeing people walk past. And the the most emotional thing for me was seeing churches uh, walking past with banners saying, you're welcome here, come, you're welcome. And I got tears and I was crying and just because I'd never had that open, welcoming, you can be who you are and come to church and there's no expectation for you to change. That wasn't my experience of God or the church up until then. It was very much, you know, love the sinner, hate the sin, and that was didn't feel congruent for me. So I remember standing on the streets of Perth watching this pride parade go past, bawling my eyes out, thinking, oh, my goodness, I have a place here. I'm welcome. This is possible. So that was incredible. And then the very first job I got, I, you know, met people and, I'm always astounded at how kind and generous people are. And the first job I got, a friend of mine had a daycare centre and said, look, you can come and help out with kids. Um, so the very first job I got was what I would say, playing with kids at a daycare centre and, and getting to sort of be adventurous and fun and, and you know, making sure everyone had sunscreen on and just playing, um, which was fun and exhausting and really, really cool and definitely not catering. So it took <laughs> all my boxes. And I loved that. And that was really cool. And then the next job I got, again, a friend was doing something and I got a job as an international recruitment consultant, had never done that before in my life, and did that for about six months. But I definitely felt a conflict of values because I, I, there was something that came up in that place. And I remember saying to somebody at the, at the work, you know, this is not a matter of life and death. And they said, no, this is more important than that. This is money. And I thought, oh, I definitely can't work for, for a business that feels like that money is more important than people. So I left without another job to go to. And then there was, you know, 200,000 jobs on seek. So I applied for almost anything I could find. And I got one interview after all the applications. And I got an interview with a company called Perth Home Care. Uh, for a roving coordinator and that was um, 14, 13 years ago and I've, the company is now called Avivo and I've been with them ever since. Sounds like you really landed on your feet and found your tribe, found those people that were like-minded to you. Yeah, it's interesting. I like the term tribe. I, I think I would describe my friends as like on the pizza wheel, I, my friends are not all ham and pineapple. So I would say I've got, you know, a whole range of different people in my pizza circles. Um, I probably need to make room for a, a bit more diversity. But I think at work, I was incredibly lucky to get that job. And Perth Home Care and Avivo has been both challenging and immensely rewarding to work for. I started out as a roving coordinator and then I got a job and there was an acting role came up in a management position. So I got a chance to do that. And then I got a job in systems because I was, you know, a bit, of a, a bit of a geek and a nerd and we got to do a system implementation. And I was in the systems team for seven years, not really knowing anything about systems, but happy to learn and give it a go. And I've always been really passionate about people and connection. So they, the the company was investing in folks uh, around coaching and I was like, oh, I'd love to do that. So I was sent on a training course for a brain-based coaching uh, training, which was fabulous, just brilliant. 
And since then, I've been an individual coach at Aviva, and then I got a, applied for and eventually got the job of team coach in Aviva, and I've been doing that for a few years. So I've done a range of different things, but I am really, really passionate about individual uh, development in whatever form that takes and working with you know, people to thrive, I suppose, would be a vivo's language. That's not always straightforward. And I think what it takes for us individually to thrive is a whole range of different things. But more often than not, somebody to help you think through your stuff is useful. And that's the stuff that really, really drives me. Well, Jack, it's been a fascinating story. I've really loved the WA connection that you had in your life and that perhaps was that emotional connection that really made it work for you and i look forward to hearing more stories from you in the future thanks for being on max's island yeah thank you so much that was great tony i really appreciate it we spoke on the bus on the way home from work he was lost in the details of life each day was a blur oh work and no play and how, how it had turned out this way He told me his plan, a short-term escape Five weeks on the Bibbulmun track Go it alone, no one to blame If he finished or fell by the way Oh, no.